Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. We are going to continue on in our series, Wait and See. And Pastor Tom started us last week with the idea of what it looks like to wait with Jesus, uh, to know that he's present, to know that he is in the midst of that and what it looks like to lean into his promises. And this morning, I want to kind of build out a little bit further on that and just kind of the practical challenges that come when we're dealing with seasons of difficulty or seasons of trial or transition. And we're going to look at what it means to practically, in praxis, to wait and to see in faith. To be able to do that in a way where you're not shaken, where you're not overcome, where you're not overwhelmed, uh, but to do it with a a faith and a confidence where you're able to stand and to move into uh, and through those types of difficulties. Uh, A number of years ago, uh, there was a young man that I knew that experienced a a specific traumatic injury uh, to, to one of his eyes. And the injury was something that came about from kind of some reckless decision-making. It wasn't something that um, uh, was unavoidable. It certainly was. Uh, But based uh, on the the outcome of what had ended up taking place is the eye was injured. Uh, There was uh, the the part of the eye that's the colored uh, part of the eye. If you've got blue eyes, if you've got brown eyes, that's the iris. And there there was a tear in that. Uh, and so there was a trauma that happened to that part of the eye, and as a result, the ocular cavity, which I don't know if you know that your, your eye is kind of hollow, that, that filled up with blood and with fluid. And so as that began to happen, and as he went to, uh, as he went to the doctor and uh, the emergency room and had people begin to attend to that, uh, they walked him through a series of studies and then brought about kind of this period of waiting, and this was the result of that, for the next two weeks, he was going to have to just wait and see. There were some things that he needed to do. There were some eye drops. There was some checkup. There was some care. But really what the doctors had told him was that we're going to have to wait and see. We're going we're to see if the fluid drains from the eye. Uh, we're going to see if the iris begins to heal on its own. We're going to see if the damage uh, is, is, is really extensive or, or maybe if it's minimal. We'll begin to be able to see if the site is going to be recovered to full strength or if it's going to be recovered even at all. And so for two weeks, this young man was told, you're going to have to just wait and see. And I, and I want to ask you, how would you respond to that situation? Like, how would you respond to, the, to that type of trauma, to that type of news? What, what would immediately begin to flood your thoughts, your heart, your mind? How, how would you feel? Uh, what, what would you begin to uh, entertain as your thoughts? H- how would you respond in that position? And it may not be something that you can relate to for, for, you know, for, from a one-to-one type of a ratio, But you and I, we're all familiar with moments like this in our lives. We have all been faced with issues, with calamities, with problems, with suddenness that has created space of uncertainty and where our only recourse is to just like wait and see. To just wait and see. What do you do? 
right? Do you get busy? Do you get frantic? Do you respond with kind of anxious activity? Do you become fearful? Are you paralyzed by your fear? Are you overwhelmed by your doubt? Does your anxiety just kind of plague your thoughts and your heart and you just, you can't get settled, you can't rest, there's no, there's no respite for you? Are there waves of depression that overwhelm you? Do you run? Do you run to addictions? Do you run to behavior that, that is, is, is um, not helpful for you? Do you retreat? Do you hide? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you do? There's, there's all kinds of ways that we can set ourselves up to that response. But what I want to suggest to you this morning, what I want to encourage you with this morning, is that there is a way for you to walk the path of wait and see in faith. That there's a way for you to wait in faith, to see in faith, in that space of like, I don't know what to do, and I don't know how this is going to turn out on the other end. But to be able to do it in a way where your peace is preserved, and where you are certain of your footing, and where you're not just kind of knocked to and fro by the uncertainty or the problems, and you're not overwhelmed by the details of the situation, that in confidence and in faith, you can remain unwavering to wait in faith and to see in faith. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to go ahead and get those out. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, I want to encourage you to open up your Bible app. And Lord, we ask you to prepare our hearts this morning to receive the encouragement from your word. Lord, there are so many challenges in our life that bring discouragement. Lord, there are so many expectations that go unmet. There are places that we have placed our hope that has shown itself to be a, a false place of security. Lord, there have been issues and trauma that we've endured and consequences of decisions of our own making. Lord, there are so many places where we could be overwhelmed. And today we ask that you would open our hearts to your word, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would be led by your spirit, and that there would be a faith that rises in us as men of God, as women of God, to stand with confidence, regardless of what we're walking through and regardless of what we're helping others walk through, that we would remain unshaken. In Jesus' name, amen. With your Bibles out, I want to encourage you to open up to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6, that's going to be uh, in the Old Testament. So if you're just starting to filter your way through Scripture, you want to start on the left side, start at the front, because uh, it's on, on that side. But in, in, in uh, 2 Kings, excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 6 is, is where we're going to be. And I want to give you a little bit of an overview of where we're starting. The, the book of 1 Kings and the book of 2 Kings are historical narratives. Okay, what that means is it reads kind of like a history book in a sense, where it's focusing in on a specific people and time and kind of culture and human history and unpacking kind of the ins and outs of what was taking place there. And 1 Kings and 2 Kings highlights the nation of Israel, the beginning of them as an actual uh, nation with a king, the, the first king being Saul, and then kind of progresses through the historic timeline of kind of how that people and how that culture kind of built and uh, existed in uh, antiquity. And so 1 Kings, 2 Kings is mapping through all of that. And if you're familiar with it, you're going to see that there are, are kings that honored the Lord and kings that, that walked in rebellion to him, that there was ebbs and flows in the whole history uh, of the people and that there were good leaders and that there were bad leaders and there were things that they did well and things that they got 
wrong, and there was uh, uh, all kinds of challenges as a result of that. And as this nation was emerging and as they were becoming an actual people with a place and a kingdom, there was all kinds of opposition. This was kind of the normative of what was going on there. And so you would hear of, of people like the Philistines, and you would hear of people like the Amalekites and the Moabites, all these other different kind of nations of people that would come to oppose uh, the people of God as they were uh, kind of uh, 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 building uh, during this time. And so the, the common, um, kind of the common ebb and flow of First Kings and Second Kings has to do with a king coming into a place of position and leadership in the nation and the opposition from the surrounding peoples that he would have to endure. And some of that was coming in response to uh, the, the consequences of sin being in the nation. And so God would, would allow it. And some of it was deliverance in places where God was showing his power and his presence and provision. And a common thread through the whole narrative is not just the idea of a king and a nation and the opposition, but through first kings and second kings, there is often present somebody who is identified as a prophet. Somebody who would hear God's word for the people and then speak it to the people, primarily to the leaders as they were the ones making the decisions for the direction that the nation was going to be going. And so you would have uh, individuals like uh, Elisha and Elijah. You would have Samuel at the beginning. You would have these individuals who were highlighted in that way. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, you have the prophet Elisha. He's followed several other prophets in the history of the nation. He had actually been an attendant uh, and um, uh, uh, kind of a disciple of uh, Elijah, who was kind of his mentor, and so he's found himself in this place where the Lord would speak to him on behalf of the people and then he would speak that word to, to the king and to the leaders and then uh, it was up to them to whether they were gonna respond in a way that honored the Lord. But that's what's going on here in the history. There's a prophet who hears from the Lord. There's opposition peoples that are constantly pressing the people of God and there is kind of this ebb and flow of leadership taking place and that gives you the background of where we begin here in 2 Kings chapter six and as we begin this narrative, Elisha is the prophet and the people of God are being harassed by uh, the opposition and at this point the people were the Arameans. They were from the nation of Aram. And this is how it reads. It says, now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And after conferring with his officers, he said, I will set my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. And so the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. I always find this part of the narrative a, a little bit humorous because the writer doesn't really care about the details of the geography, right? It's like the enemy was like, they were over here somewhere, right? And the king was like, he needed to look out. And so the Lord would speak to the man of God and the man of God would be like, hey, look, they're over there somewhere. And he'd be like, oh, I see him over there. And then he wouldn't get caught. I mean, it's, it's the most kind of basic overview of what's going on. Right? There's an enemy that's trying to entrap the people of God. God is speaking to the prophet, and he's giving them the whereabouts of the enemy, and they're evading the enemy. Because that's really all you need to know what's going on here. That the enemy had a design and a plan to entrap and to impede and to bring bondage to the people of God, and God was speaking ways of escape and ways of deliverance. And really, that could be something that you just hold on to today. 
Like we could stop right there and you could go out with that confidence and certainty that the things that would look to oppose the plans and purposes of God in your life, that God will speak and he will make a way. And if you would walk in just that simple faith, it would go a long way towards changing maybe your day to day. But the narrative continues on from there. The narrative continues on from there. And we, this, this doesn't seem uh, really like um, uh, uh, kind of a stretch of the imagination. This is how uh, I think anybody would respond. Verse 11 says this, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and he demanded them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel, right? So he calls them, on, uh, calls them all in and says, okay, who's, who, who, who's the mole, right? Who's, who's giving up the plans? Which one of you is a spy, right? Snitches get stitches and who's it gonna be right now? He brings them all in, right? And, and they're like, oh my gosh, like it's not us. Here's, the, here's their response. Verse 12, none of us, my lord, the king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. So they're like, hey, we're not selling you out. It's not us. It's not us. There's somebody that God speaks to who is, he's ratting you out. And when you begin to read the rest of the narrative, he's like, okay, we've got to deal with that. We have, to we have to deal with the one who is selling us out. All of our plans are being disrupted. And so they send out spies, they figure out where Elisha is, and they mobilize an army to go deal with that because he's got to deal with this issue so that then he can go on with his military campaign. Everything I'm trying to do is being disrupted, and so I have to deal with that disruption, and this guy is the disruption, so let's go ahead and deal with that. And so there's an army that's amassed. They know where Elisha is. And the army comes and at night surrounds the city. They're not hiding. This isn't a covert op. It's a show of force. They're there to deal with this so that they can get on with what they want to be doing as far as conquest. And so they encircle the city where the man of God is. Elisha is there and he's not alone. He's there with an attendant. He's there with uh, somebody in scripture who I identified as a servant, but it would have been somebody who would have been like an attendant and even like a disciple. He would have been mentoring this young man in the ways of hearing from God and responding to the things of God, much like Elisha was with Elijah. This was a normative type of apprenticeship. And so he had a young man who was with him. And so the, the army comes and they encircle the town. Elisha is in there. He's there with his attendants. So it was just the regular of the town folk as well. And so picking up in verse 15, we see the response of the servant man. When the servant of the man of God, his attendant, his apprentice, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. An army with horses and chariots. It wasn't just some foot soldiers. They came in force, they came in mass, they came quickly, and they were gonna deal with this. And he exclaims, oh no, right? That's probably what we would say. Oh no, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? This is his crisis moment. This is his crisis moment. This is his suddenly, things aren't going the way that I thought. This is his suddenly, there is opposition. This is this suddenly, there is calamity raining down on me. This is his moment of crisis. This is a moment that initiates the, I don't know what's gonna happen after this. I don't have answers for this. I'm not prepared for this. This wasn't something that I had foreseen or anticipated. It's not something that I have been training for my whole life. 
I got up in the morning to have breakfast, and now instead I have an army of opposition against me. I don't know what to do. It's his crisis moment. And in this moment, he's left with, we're going to just have to wait and see. We're just going to have to wait and see what happens. And so he exclaims. He exclaims in fear. He shouts out in uncertainty. Oh, no. What are we going to do? In your wait and see moments, in your unexpected crisis, in your challenges, in your difficulties, in your, I wasn't prepared for that. This is frequently our first visceral emotional response. Oh no, what am I going to do? I don't have an answer for this. I'm not prepared for this. I don't, I don't know if I have any recourse at all. I certainly don't have the strength or the training. I guess I'm just going to have to wait and see. And what happens is Elisha speaks into this young man's perspective. He speaks into this young man's situation. They're sharing it together. That's helpful, by the way. But this becomes a teaching moment. This becomes a teaching moment. Listen to me. This is a teaching moment for this young man who is learning what it means to follow the voice of God. A young man, is, he's learning how to follow God. And in reading it as a narrative for you and I, it becomes a teaching moment for you and I as to what it looks like for us in uncertainty to know how to respond as men of God, as women of God. In your wait and see crisis, in your challenges, in your difficulties, there is a way for us to respond. And we see Elisha encourage us with that. So at this exclamation, there is this, I don't have a way forward. And Elisha's answer gives us, I think, three things that are helpful for us to consider if we want to wait and see in faith. So let's look at his response. Verse 16 says, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I'm going to stop right there because I don't know what went through his mind first and foremost here right? It's not always helpful when I have a, a, a fearful reaction for somebody to tell me not to be fearful, right? Isn't that kind of hard, right? Or you have an emotional reaction and somebody says, don't be so emotional, right? Doesn't that make you just more emotional? You want to throat punch them, right? You want to help them out here? Like, fine, we're going to turn this from emotion. We're just going to get physical with this. Like, I, like he responds in fear, and, the, ser- or, and the, the, uh, the man of God says, don't be afraid. It's not always the easiest thing for us to hear. In fact, if you are somebody who's familiar with the Gospels, man, Jesus had to do that for his disciples all the time. Oh, don't be afraid. Hey, don't be afraid. Hey, don't be afraid. It's a common refrain because our almost uh, always our initial reaction is, is frequently towards being fearful. So he responds with, don't be afraid. And then he says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I don't know, uh, I don't know what his first thought would have been. Because if you're thinking about this in the natural, then Elijah has to be talking about the townsfolk. I don't know if that's really that helpful. Right? You've got a trained, amassed army that is ready for battle. And your, like, your gathering is just like what you got in town. 
right? Now, out here in rural America, we might think that we've got enough hee-haw in us to go ahead and deal with like an army on our doorsteps. I mean, we like to think that way for sure. But if there was an actual mechanized outfit army on the outskirts of Sterling and I'm supposed to just find some folks from town to get my back, I'm not sure if that's something that I want to do. So I don't know what he thought here, but on, initially these two things don't sound very encouraging, do they? Don't be afraid. Those who are with us outnumber the enemy. Uh, do you see who we got? <laughs> but then Elisha prayed. Open his eyes so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. His eyes were open to a spiritual reality that God was present, that he was there in power and force, and that there was already a provision for the need that they were facing. Now, I want you to understand something. That wasn't the reality because the servant saw it. If the servant had never seen it, it would have still been true. See, God was present, and he was there, amassed in power, and he was ready to bring about the provision of deliverance that was needed, whether the servant recognized it or not. And that's an important thing to understand when we're talking about waiting in faith and seeing in faith, but there's three things that you can pull out of just this little exchange here that are helpful, and one is to wait in faith means that you are able to be at peace in a circumstance that is uncertain. When Elisha said, don't be afraid, I feel like that probably had some weight to it because you know what you don't see Elisha doing? He's not fearful. You can consider the source of the words being spoken there. That's why when Jesus would speak in the New Testament to his disciples in uncertain, fearful circumstances, and he would say, don't be afraid, you could be like, okay, I, I can get behind that. Why? Because you never saw Jesus frantic and fearful, and you don't see that in the man of God here. Elisha is not that way. He's at peace. He's at peace. Did you know that a non-anxious presence in, a, in an anxious situation is something that can afford strength and peace to others? That as a man of God, as a woman of God, going through times of difficulty and going through that with a, a, a series of people who may be losing their minds, that if you would respond as a man of faith, a woman of faith, and you would be at peace, that that peace would be something that would lend itself to others and would be a vehicle to introduce them to the Lord. Be at peace. And when you're certain about who God is, and your relationship to him, you can stand in peace regardless of what you see. If the servant there, if the attendant there was so convinced of who God was and how God responds to the issues in his own life, he wouldn't have needed to see the angelic army to somehow be certain. He could have been at peace like the one who was looking to mentor him. Because being at peace means that I know that God's in control when my situation is out of control. I know that God has an answer when I don't have an answer to what's going on. I know that my God is strong in this situation where I am weak. I can be at peace. There's a place where God speaks to his people in the Old Testament where he says, Be still and know that I am God. 
stop striving, ceasing, working, just rest, and then the know that I am God is not know it in your head, like, okay, okay, I know. The know at the core of the word means to experience personally for yourself. And in your wait and see crisis moments right now, God would say, hey, be still and let me show you. Let me show you. Be at peace. The second thing that you see here is that he remained confident. You don't see any frantic activity. He's not packing his bags. He's not trying to sneak out of the city, right? He's not looking for his escape route. He's not trying to find his bunker. You don't see any frantic activity in Elisha. He doesn't retreat. He's got bold, courageous confidence to stand fast. There is a refrain in the book of Psalms over and over and over, if you would read through that, where there's a declaration by those who were writing to say this, I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. Though this happens, I will not be shaken because you have done this. You have said that. You have shown me this. You have proven that. Over and over and over, I will not be shaken. To wait and to see in faith means that everything else is in upheaval, but I am not in upheaval. I am not in upheaval in my person because I am at peace, and I will not be shaken. I will not be moved because my feet aren't set on my circumstances, and my feet aren't set in my own strength, but I'm standing on the rock. I'm standing on the word of God, the promises of God, the person and the presence and the power of God, and I will not be shaken. That changes everything when you stand in that type of faith and confidence. And this young man is learning that. He's learning that in a very real world praxis. Be at peace, remain in confidence. And then it is interesting to me that, that Elisha prays and asks God to show him, open his eyes. And what his eyes are open to is not the details of the physical reality. It's not the number of the enemy, and it's not the resource within the city. His eyes are open to the spiritual reality that God was already present and that God had amassed in power and in force and that he was going to have an answer to what was about to happen. His eyes were open to that. But more than that, this is, I think this is important. His eyes were open to the reality that that was true before he saw it. See, we make a mistake sometimes that if we could like see something like super spiritual or, or really radical in the natural, that somehow that would be enough to give us faith, that we would be a real man of faith, a real woman of faith. You know, if I saw an angel pastor, then I could really, or if, or if I saw Jesus face to face, I could really, or if, or if I saw a physical miracle, then th that would be the thing that got me over kind of that tipping point. That would be the thing that would relieve all of my doubt, and I could really walk and live as a man or a woman of faith. Can I tell you that's not true? Scripture is full of people who saw angelic hosts and did not respond in a way of faith. Scripture is full of people who walked next to Jesus and watched him do the miraculous and they never put their faith in him. It's a misnomer to think or to suggest that you and I have to somehow see something and experience something like super radical in order for us to be men and women of faith. In fact, greater faith comes from just believing Believing God is who he says he is and he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do and he's gonna do that every single time. And so I can be at peace and I will remain unmoved because I will not be shaken because I have eyes to see how God is present in my problem. See, the servant was given 
some insight, and it was helpful for him. It's encouraging. I, I don't want to diminish those moments. They are important. They are formative. They're transformative, but they're not necessary. It would have been a lesson that would have stuck with him in his next wait-and-see crisis. He wouldn't have needed to see some type of supernatural spiritual reality. He would have been able to set his feet and say, man, God came through before. He's going to come through again. And we get narratives like this in Scripture for our benefit to be able to see how God has moved for us to understand and to believe in faith how he will continue to do those things. In John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus is talking to Thomas. He's come back to talk to Thomas as he had already shown himself to the other disciples and Thomas had not been present at that time and, and he said, hey, if I don't see Jesus, if I don't put my fingers in the holes, like I'm not, this is, I can't. And Jesus comes back and he shows himself and he, he brings Thomas into a reconciliation type of a moment but he speaks these words to him. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You don't have to have like the experience or the outcome that you want to be a man of great faith, to be a woman of great faith. You don't have to receive what you hope for in the end for you to be somehow at peace or to be unmovable or unshakable. If you put your hope in outcomes, there will always be a sense of disappointment because God does the unexpected in those things. Sometimes even the unpreferred. But scripture says if you put your hope in the Lord, you will not be disappointed. It's an absolute promise. You, you, you put your weight, your hope, you shift that onto the Lord. You'll never walk in disappointment. You may not have all the answers that you thought you would or the outcome that you would have preferred you'll never be disappointed. You never get less with Jesus. You always get more. In the narrative, it doesn't end the way that you would anticipate, right? The servant sees this angelic army, and then I would begin to, like, write, like, the ending of one of the Lord of the Rings movies, or this was going to be, like, a Braveheart moment. Like, this, like this would be, like, all right, now, like, the flaming swords of God's judgment are going to just come and annihilate the enemy. And there's places in Scripture where God did that type of fighting on behalf of his people. But what's wild in this narrative is that doesn't happen. The man of God who has prayed that his attendant would be able to see prays that the enemy's eyes would be closed. It's really kind of an ironic twist in what God is doing here. And ultimately, the result of this confrontation is not an enemy that is destroyed, but an enemy that is won over in friendship. You can read it for yourself. There's a reconciliation that comes on the end of it. You would have never anticipated that that was gonna be part of the story, but it was something that God did. He used this crisis moment. He used this wait and see moment of conflict and opposition to actually bring about reconciliation for a time between the Arameans and the nation of Israel and a peace that had been elusive. How do you wait and see? How do you respond to those moments? For me, it was, it was two weeks of laying on my back, putting eye drops in, being still and waiting to see what the outcome was going to be.
It was two weeks of having friends from church come and pray over me. It was two weeks from being encouraged by my friends. It was two weeks of trusting that the Lord was gonna do something even though I didn't know what that could be. It was two weeks of uncertainty. But it wasn't two weeks of fear. It wasn't two weeks of what if. It wasn't two weeks of anxiety or depression. It was two weeks of peace and it was two weeks of trust. And at the end of those two weeks, I went back to the doctor and I had them examine my eye. And if we were to talk face to face after service, there's a scar in the iris of my eye. There's a red dot that you'd be able to see if the sun was reflecting in there. There's, there's the scar of the trauma and the tissue there. But my, my eye had drained. The pressure in my eye was back to where it was supposed to be. They gave tests. And after those two weeks, I walked out of the doctor's office with 20-20 vision still in both eyes. It was a miracle. It was, it, was, it was a grace and it was a kindness of the Lord. It was unexpected. But I had peace before. I was unshaken before. I was certain of God's goodness before. And that's not to suggest that that posture gives you the outcome that you want. It's to let you know that even without the outcome, that was already a present part of my life for that moment. That hasn't always been the case in my wait and see crisis. I've responded in fear. I've been overwhelmed by anxiety. There's been parts of my story that certainly are wave after wave of challenge. But for that one, I can tell you, I was able to wait and to see in faith, and it made all the difference. I'm gonna ask you to stand this morning, and as we close, I want you to consider your wait and faith seasons and moments right now. What are the things that you're challenged by? What are the things that you're facing? What are the difficulties that are out in front of you? I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes for a moment, maybe just as a way to drown out distractions around you as our team is moving forward or your friends are getting situated. But what, what is your wait and see challenge today? You know, where right now, where are you pressed by anxiety? Where are you pressed by fear? Where do you have a sense of depression or doubt? Where is there uncertainty about your future? Maybe there's a health diagnosis that you're walking through that is causing a particular sense of anxiety. Maybe you have financial pressures. Maybe your home or your relationships are in upheaval. Like where, where are you feeling that sense of uncertainty? What, what areas of your life right now are you tempted to like retreat, to just pack up and run, to give ground, maybe to run back to uh, an addiction or to give way to a, a, a temptation, to, to give up on a relationship? to not continue to move forward in the direction that the Lord's giving you or to pray towards a specific end? Where, where are you so weary in your soul right now that you're ready to just cut and run? Where, where do you have eyes only for the details of your problems right now? Where do you have eyes only for the details of the opposition? That when you look out, you don't see God's provision. You don't see his presence. You don't see his power. You just see the number of the enemy. You just see the, 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 the deck stacked against you. Lord, into those places would you open our eyes this morning? 
Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your presence to, to receive in faith and believe your promises? Lord, that there would be a certainty that you are a God of power and provision and that you will make a difference, that you will turn the tide, that there is a rest of the story that we're not aware of yet. Give us eyes to see not our situation, but you in it, that our hope would be in you and not disappointed. Give us a boldness to remain unshaken steadfast, confident, courageous. And Lord, let us receive your peace today. In our seasons and moments of wait and see, Lord, we choose to do that in faith as men of God, as women of God, standing on your word and led by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Action steps for you this week. There's three of them. Number one is just to begin to consider or identify or recognize your wait and see challenges that either you're facing or that you're walking with others in. Number two, as you are recognizing those, determined to wait and see in faith. Be at peace, remain in confidence, and pray in power towards that end.